welcome to the Girls Who Run the World podcast, where we're bringing you inspiring guests who are leaders in their industries. We'll be tackling topics from education and empowerment to diversity and inclusion. Together, let's learn from these incredible women. This podcast is brought to you by Our Gorongosa. We create specialty coffee with 100% of profits supporting people, wildlife, and the planet in Gorongosa National Park, Mozambique. Girls' education is one of our biggest priorities because we know girls have the power to change the world. Just like Beyonce said, who runs the world? Girls! Hello, and welcome back to the Girls Who Run the World podcast. I'm your host, Emily, and I'm so excited for you to be joining us today for this amazing interview with Mayor McLean. Before we get to today's episode, I want to make sure everyone knows to go and purchase the very first single origin coffee from Mozambique made by yours truly. So Argorangosa has released its very first single origin, which happens to also be the first single origin to come from Mozambique. So it's a very exciting opportunity to have even more of an impact on the communities of Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. So for today's episode, we are thrilled to have our interview with Mayor Lauren McLean, who is the mayor of Boise, Idaho. So for this episode, you will learn all about how public service has been an integral part of Lauren's career and personal life. We also chat about what navigating the challenges of a global pandemic has looked like for her and her offices. We talk about her passion for the environment, including the plans for Boise's Climate Action Roadmap. And we talk about what she loves most about the Boise community and what drew her here originally. Lastly, we touch on the power of unity and community, especially during difficult times. So I absolutely loved this interview and I hope you love it too. She is absolutely a girl who is running the world. Let's get to it. Here's episode 16 featuring Mayor Lauren McLean. Welcome to the show, Mayor McLean. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks, Emily. It's great to be here. My pleasure. So we're going to jump right on in to our opening segment. Are you ready? I am ready, or I thought I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look really ready. You're in. <laughs> what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, there's in these tough, tough times, I do find that there's still so much to be grateful for. And for me, it boils down to the basics of people. I'm incredibly grateful for this community, the folks that have stepped up and taken care of each other, incredibly grateful for my own family and the support and care that we provide each other. And know that because of that, you know, every day doing this work is a joy um, because it's all about people um, that are in it with me. Mm -hmm. That is beautiful. Really, we're nowhere without the people in our lives. So I love that answer. What inspires you daily? So where do you draw inspiration from? It keeps you going in all the amazing pursuits you're doing with the city. What is your inspiration? So I find a lot of inf inspiration in the good work that people voice help us do, right? So, it, and it's the simple things. It's visiting a school and talking with teachers and other educators about their experiences and, and seeing how they're every day supporting their kiddos. It's, you know, I find inspiration even just in the smiles of folks on their mountain bikes and hiking with their dogs as I'm on a trail 
um, or their desire just to share a little bit of information with me. And, you know, the, you know, there's a really, I don't know what it is, but um, when I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm playing, there's so much energy in this community that really sustains me. And that not only helps me keep going, but really makes it so that myself and so many others can thrive. And I find that incredibly inspiring. Mm, I love that. I'm actually going to Boise for my first time next week. So I'm very excited to get the energy of the people and see all the beautiful sights. Well, I hope that you're visiting the zoo while you're there. The Gorongosa partnership is so important to our city and it's, it's really a center point piece of our zoo too. Yes. I hope I can make it because uh, as you said, we have such a great partnership and it would be amazing to be able to take a look at that, but it's my first time. So it's a very full week, (laughs) but I'll be back. Yes. (laughs) What advice would you give your younger self? And I always preface by adding if she would listen (laughs) because, you know, (laughs) I think of myself as a teenager and I don't know if I would have listened, but (laughs) What would you tell your younger self? I would say, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. Don't get bogged down in perfection and enjoy every experience, good or bad, um, that comes your way as you're keeping at it. Yeah, I think that that's probably what I'd tell myself. I don't know if I'd listen. I normally would probably ask, well, what age? What age am I talking about? Um, (laughs) but, But I think that that's so much of it is so often we find ourselves getting discouraged being told we ought to do other things, not seeing the role models we want to have and just keep at it. And then also, as I mentioned, don't like so often, especially um, young women and young girls um, get really worried about their performance and perfection in that. So just recognizing too, that there's beauty in, in normalcy and, you know, keep at it. Mm, I love that. And as a recovering perfectionist, that's what I call myself. I, that really resonates with me. (laughs) It is, it is hard. And you often, for any women listening, I'm sure there's a lot of you recovering perfectionists out there. It can be really hard to realize that it's not never going to be perfect. So we just got to keep at it. Like you said, (laughs) what is one mantra that you like to live your life by? You know, when, when, that question came up. I thought that was so interesting because I've never really thought about, I don't, you know, I don't have a saying, I don't have something that I tell myself often, but then I did think about um, one that my daughter lives by and that is um, one day at a time. Mm. And so I thought I would highlight that because it is a saying that for her meant a ton in a really tough time, but it's become a saying that we use often in our house and our home and really goes back to you know, this notion, I even touched on it, that enjoy the journey. You know, every day is going to be different. You don't know what's coming at you. Keep at it. And um, so that I thought was one that I would be good to share. And then we have this funny joke in our house too. Years ago when my kids were little, we watched two movies like within the same week, maybe even night to night. And one was Undaunted and the other was Talladega Nights. And I mean, very different movies. And they, but they each had like some sort of racing scene in them. And I don't remember what it was in Undaunted that was said, but it was so inspiring. But in Talladega Nights, they had the saying, like, if you're not first, you're last. (laughs) And then we were at this track meet. My son was like in middle school and he had a track meet. And I like, I was never one to really like cheer, like to get involved in the game. But we just watched these two movies. 
he was doing great. And I wanted to say whatever it was, you know, I can't even remember what it was that had been said that was so inspiring and undaunted because we all thought it was so cool. And instead I'm standing near the finish line and I scream, if you're not first, you're last. And then everybody around me just stops and looks at me. And I was like, what I say? And my husband and daughter are like, what are you saying? And so that's become a family like mantra and joke and not at all, not at all. Meaning that we believe that if you're not first, you're last. But again, like there was like the intent was so different. And, um, and now it's become one of those things that we use to cheer each other on and cheer each other up um, and laugh about it at the same time, like in all the mistakes that we make. So that's hilarious. As soon as you started that end part, I was like, oh, I see where we're going with this. She's going to say, if you're not first, you're last, which is and I awkward. I totally didn't know that that's what I was saying. I really thought I was saying the other thing, that none of us in our family have ever been able to remember again. <laughs> that is so funny. Oh, I love that. Who or what has been your biggest teacher so far in your life? That's a, you know, that's a hard the biggest piece is hard because I feel like there have been so many experiences, so many people that have really taught me along the way. But kind of thinking back, I'd say that I'm going to use an, an example of like the impact it had on where, where I ended up here in the city, but also in how I think about public policy and citizen action and engagement. Um, and that was in my early 20s, I was part of a campaign here in Boise to protect our foothills. And it, you know, everybody said it couldn't be done. It couldn't be done. It couldn't be done. And in the matter of four or five months, a group of citizens came together. Like we were young, idealistic, but committed. And together, what you know, amassed a volunteer crew of five hundred volunteers that knocked on doors, talked about this place that we love, and we won. And to me, it showed and taught me the power of one face-to-face communication with people at their doors and in community, the importance of being mission-driven and value-driven, and then how necessary it is to work together with a team of people that share your values. And when that happens, there's so much that can be done. Mm, That's such a great story. I love that. So many lessons. So it sounds like you've always been somewhat involved in politics and things related to politics, but I'd love for you to kind of situate the listeners a little bit in terms of your early life. So kind of where you grew up and what your early life was filled with. Sure. So it's funny. Um, I have been involved in policy and politics for a long time. My grandparents, they're, they're not with us anymore, but they would say, well, of course you're doing this. But I'd be like, no, no, this is like total, you know, chance and happenstance. They're like, no, 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 of course you're doing this. The, when I was a kid, I, so I grew up in, I lived until I was 15 in Houston, Texas. And so I um, was born in Boston, but my dad was at graduate school there. So when I was an infant, we went down to Houston where he did postdoctorate work. And so I'm the oldest of four kids. We lived in the city at an interesting time where my dad, you know, my mom was home. Um, she worked in the preschool for a little bit that we went to. My dad was really busy doing postdoctorate work. You know, financially we struggled, but we, you know, we, we got by and were fine. And um, but at a time when the city was really growing, and there was such interesting opportunity and really interesting people that I was surrounded by because my dad was at the university, and it was it was a like when I think back on it, it was it did have a lot of impacts on me. Like I had access to great libraries and amazing parks and we could go listen to 
the Houston Symphony and see the Houston Ballet for free because there was an outdoor theater. So we got to do all these things that we couldn't afford to do, but were available to us. And then just the exposure I had to people from so many different countries really had me interested from a very young age in the world and what was going on. In high school, I moved from a, you know, a city of over 3 million people to a tiny village of 3,000 as a sophomore in high school. And so I spent three years in rural upstate New York. And my parents are still there. I didn't feel all that tied to it, except that I met my husband there. I actually met him at, um, he came, my birthday's in October. And so this girl that I met and I, she also had an October birthday. We had a party together so I could meet people because I just moved there. And, and I met him there. We didn't, we started dating two years later, but it is funny to think about um, how I met him. And uh, so those years went, you know, smaller school, still really interested in policy and politics and U.S. history and studied languages and just really enjoyed that time. Um, and then went to college at Notre Dame and, and then spent a year overseas as part of that, did a policy fellowship. I had a, I won a fellowship, oh, what do you call it, like a scholarship through the Hesburgh program for my junior year, which brought me to Montana. Okay. And it was in that summer working for a couple initiatives out of the governor's office that I really fell in love with the West and wanted to move here. So after I graduated, Scott and I got married that summer. And um, less than a year later, we were driving out here to move to Boise because we discovered Boise in February after we got married. And so then when I got here, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because there was no law school and I planned to go to law school. At a, and so I went to Boise State, got a graduate um, degree in public administration and jumped into volunteer opportunities in politics, in conservation. I mentioned the Foothills campaign that I led. And, and after leading that campaign, I um, also volunteered my time on citizen boards and commissions for the city. And that's really how I in, ended up getting involved in city politics. So I would still say it was all kind of happenstance <laughs> because, you know, my plan was not to live in Boise when I was a kid. But from the moment I saw Boise from the airplane and then was able to step foot in the foothills on a run, um, I wanted to be here and I knew this was home. And so I was so lucky that my husband agreed and we could find a job that could bring us here. And we got here when we were 23 and we've been here ever since. Wow. There's so much there. And I love hearing the story. It's so cool to hear how a lot of these opportunities kind of laddered up to where you are now yeah. in your career, yeah. it sounds like. So you're always so interested in policy and you might have not really recognized it as politics, but it's like policy, politics, environmental causes, it sounds like. And I'm really curious to hear from you how you really started to develop your career in politics and what were those kind of stepping stones that got you to where you are now as the mayor of your city? I'd love sure. to. So I would say I started to develop my career in politics by um, developing in my career or by participating in citizen action and advocacy. So I volunteered on campaigns. I then helped lead campaigns. I, and from that work, I was able to translate it into working with a nonprofit. That, so I worked in communities around the state on conservation issues and then at the legislature as a lobbyist. And then while doing that, I also, because I was really um, 
loved the city and loved the opportunity to be involved, I volunteered on first the Parks Commission and then the Planning and Zoning Commission and then applied for and was named to a seat on the city council. So all at the same Mm -hmm. time that I was kind of doing um, policy work in my private life, um, I was also volunteering with the city and ultimately serving as a city council member before running for mayor. And, you know, I'll say that as I, when I decided to run for city council or decided to um, apply for a city council position first, and then I ran, it was because someone had called me and told me they were retiring from a legislative seat and that I needed to, to announce I was running. And I was like, what? I'm not, I'm not going to run for the legislature. Well, everybody says, you know, it, you're next, you're next. I'm like, well, that, everybody is not me. And I need more than three days notice. And, and then I started telling myself all the things that, and telling this person all the things that women tell themselves. I'm too young. I don't have the experience. Like they'll say all these bad things about me. I need more time to think about this. Like all of this stuff. And then he, you know, kept coming at me that week because I wasn't sure who was going to announce they were running when he announced he was retiring. And finally, I said, look, if I was going to run for anything, I'd run for city council. And, and I was <laughs> like, oh, maybe that's what. So it was, I mean, it was really, it was that. Like, I was so enjoying being a volunteer on the Planning and Zoning Commission. And we had written the city's comprehensive plan. So talking about, like, these important things for the city for the next 20 years. And that was 12 years ago. And so, but it was in that like expectation that I was going to run for something else that I believed I wasn't qualified for, also wasn't interested in, that just I blurted out what I would do otherwise. (laughs) And that like, and there it went. So. And seems like the rest is history as they say. (laughs) I love that. So I can tell that you're so invested in your community and you have such a strong love for the city and the people in it. And I would love to hear a little bit more from you about what is so special about Boise and what do you love about the community? So people will not want us to talk about this because then more people will come to Boise, right? So, um, but I'll say this, I just finished my state of the city. I gave my state of the city address a couple weeks ago. And in it, I tried to paint the picture of our history uh, as a city um, in this time of intense growth that we're experiencing right now, which feels frustrating and a little scary because we're worried that we're going to lose what we love about this place. But the history of Boise since Westerners arrived has been that of growth and conflict and then some equilibrium and more growth and conflict and equilibrium. But through it all, it is marked by what this one historian said, a group of people who have a unity of purpose in creating a city that they love. And when I found that when I was doing research, I was like, oh, that's such a beautiful way of putting into words what I have always loved about this place. And that is the intentional nature of folks that call Boise home in protecting Boise, shaping Boise, and welcoming others to Boise, um, and then doing it all again. And so we are this city that is a surprise to most people when they arrive because we're incredibly isolated from other cities of our size. We're wedged in the high desert between our downtowns, between a, a river and the foothills to the Rockies. And we have incredible unrivaled access to open space and parks. And, but most importantly, we have people um, that share this love of place. And it's that connection that I believe pulls us through the tough times and keep so many of us coming back to do it again. Mm, 
I love that. That unity piece was, was really beautiful. So I can totally see how when you came across that, that is the perfect way to give some words to that experience and that feeling when a community is really united in supporting each other and loving this place where you call home. So that's really beautiful. And speaking of tough times, we are, of course, still finding ourselves in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic. And something that I was really curious to hear from you is how you've been navigating that as the leader of a, of a large city and what you have seen as the biggest challenges around this pandemic. You know, when I get the question of how you navigate, I'm like, I just really want to say, well, I don't know. We, we just navigated it because we had to, right? So <laughs> I, was, I was sworn in less than two months before we took our first COVID actions and announced that we were going to shut down bars and restaurants. And then the governor stepped in and issued a stay home order. And the, so it was, first off, I've navigated it by, by sharing with my staff and knowing to myself was most important. And that is that we are going to put people first and protect people because we believed in my early days as mayor, when I had no furniture yet in my office, that our city would get through this stronger if we made decisions that were focused first on protection of people. And so, and then of course, following the science. But at that point, we didn't know that that was going to be, you know, such a radical idea that you would follow the science. And so, who knew? So, the, you know, I I have like, I I have these images of the early days because it was early March and, you know, it was kind of dark and dreary outside people stopped coming downtown even before we were making announcements just because people were getting nervous. We recognized that we needed to do something and we would likely be the first city to make announcements. And we had a couple, like a weekend where we had our IT team and kind of city leadership team in that I was still getting to know, right? Because they're career people. So I had to get to know them and to convert the whole city to remote work and then to prepare the policies internally for our own employees and externally that we'd be announcing St. Patrick's Day week. And that really though set the tone for how we navigated moving forward. We knew that we we looked at what we could learn from the experiences of other places at that point. We said, okay, we're going to do what we have to do to protect people. And we're going to call on Boiseans to do it side by side with us. And so as we navigated the pandemic, that's really what we've continued to do. And we were the first city to, even before our health district, to require masks Mm. in July of 2020. So when we realized that things had gotten better, but then um, everything opened up in June, we saw a spike. We knew we needed to do something. So we had required them indoors in city facilities, but this was going to be a community-wide mask mandate. And so we were the first to do that. And the health district followed probably by a week or two after us. And I'd say what what surprised me about this, this whole process is the impact that leadership had nationally on the tone and tenor of the debate and conversation. And this issue aside, we've seen a radicalization of politics throughout this country and deep entrenchment on one side or the other, a lack of leadership that's willing 
to kind of give set the tone and tenor in the early days of people first. And because of that, it made the job so much harder at the local level because we were stuck having to make the decisions. Mm -hmm. But we were dealing with a national dialogue that made that so tough. And it made it dangerous for local elected officials, quite frankly. And, you know, I shouldn't be surprised anymore because it's now been, we're seeing the after effects of that a year and a half later still. But it still confounds me that we as a nation allowed a small group of people to drive the debate away from a message of unity against the shared enemy, which was a virus that we could have curbed. And that's, we're seeing, we're, we're, we're going to see the after effects of that for a long time, not just from a COVID perspective, but from a civic engagement and democracy perspective. And that I think is really unfortunate and could have been really different and puts the, um, I would say a, a greater importance on um, local leaders, not just for public health issues, but for everything to really be clear about how we as communities like approach issues and create space for people that have real conversations to share their feedback, to be involved in the policymaking process, to bring people back into the fold. Um, and, you know, it's my hope that in doing that in the next couple of years on a whole range of issues here in Boise, we'll be able to focus that passion that folks have and to recover from the impact of really kind of the poisoning and partisanship that we saw around COVID the last couple of years. Mm. Yes, absolutely. It will be interesting to see how the after effects, if you will, will continue to play out. And I do really have high hopes that the initiatives of people like yourself to, as you were mentioning, get people back into the fold to feel like we are part of something bigger than just ourselves is super important. And I really hope that that's how it plays out for us. That's where that's what I'm visioning for us. <laughs> so something I know that you are very passionate about in your community is environmental causes. And I would love to hear a bit from you about Boise's climate action roadmap. So I thought that looked really interesting. And I would just love kind of the basics of what that is and why that was so important for you. Sure. Well, I get really excited when I think about our climate action roadmap, but importantly, most importantly, our, our climate leadership that that, you know, and that's a part of it. I believe that cities that address the impacts of climate change, we have to address those impacts, but importantly, think about how they can harness the opportunities that come from addressing the challenges and building a 21st century economy will be the cities that win in the long run. And when I say win, I mean cities that are able to provide healthy environments, affordable, energy efficient homes, and importantly, the jobs of the future for her residents so that individuals and families can thrive. And so our climate action roadmap is the plan that will get us to carbon neutrality by 2050 as a whole community and carbon neutrality by 2035 as a city government. Mm -hmm. And then it also has the early steps of achieving 100% clean electricity to feed city buildings and city services by 2030 and then citywide by 2035. And a super exciting announcement I was able to make a couple of weeks ago, and it was fun to be able to share it with the president about a week before I announced it to our residents, was that we will be beating our clean electricity goals by as many as seven years 
and expect that as early as 2023, Boise city government will be fueled by 100% clean electricity. And so the roadmap gets us there. It creates the path from a policy perspective, from an electrification perspective, but also provides ways that residents can help us meet these goals too. Um, And it's things as simple as cutting one car trip a week out of your schedule. We're We're aiming to double our tree canopy. And so that increases our tree canopy. So planting trees, helping us electrify our buildings. We're doing it at the city municipal building levels and electrifying our fleet. It's it's the tangible steps that we need to take to meet the goals that we have. And I mentioned the economic pieces. Um, And for me, like so many people will say, ah, the environment's one thing, the economy is the other. I'm like, no, 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 no. They're actually really linked, really linked. And that's why I believe that cities that take these steps that lead through these challenges will be the ones that can provide the best opportunity for their residents. And we are seeing, we just were able to announce during COVID, a new manufacturing company is coming to Boise, Selected Boise, to do their their manufacturing for all the West because they share our climate values. Mm -hmm. They want to be sourced by clean electricity where they can. They valued and put points on our city's climate leadership. And now we're talking with them about how we can, you know, further leverage their work and the city's work to benefit each other. And then when you think about the transition from um, carbon-based power to clean power and the importance of energy efficiency and new technologies, those new technologies and the creativity that makes it possible to reach our goals will help build the economy of the future. And we want to do that here. And so it's really looking at how we can take these know, lofty, audacious, but we're going to work like hell to meet them goals and turn that into real benefits for our residents. Wow, that is super exciting and sounds like such an amazing way to support really the future of everyone who lives in your beautiful city. So that's so exciting. Well, and I was going to jump in here because you mentioned the future and I realized I should have mentioned it is about the future and that, you know, I've touched on that. But we also started a, climate, a youth climate action council. Mm. And so we have high school students from around the city that we selected to help us think about how we best meet the demands of the future. And so we're providing them the opportunity to really get to know city services and what we're doing from a climate perspective and how that links to the economy and everything else. But then taking from them um, their ideas and suggestions and they're helping guide our plans and frameworks moving forward. Oh, I love that. Maybe the next mayor is there somewhere. <laughs> Who knows? I would be surprised. I would not be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And before we get to the rapid fire round, I want to acknowledge you for the incredible work that you're doing in your community and taking a huge stand for the environment and for the future of Boise and its incredible community. Well, thank you. And I want to say thanks for all that you're doing to support girls and women everywhere. It's incredibly important and really appreciate all that you guys do. Oh, thank you. It's our pleasure. Okay, let's get to it. What's a book that's changed your life? Oh, goodness. Those, these rapid fire questions, we're really doing them. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the a book that's changed my life, shoot, I'm already going to fail at rapid fire. <laughs> it's okay. Um, if you could see the room I'm sitting in, you'd see that I'm surrounded by books. Actually, I'm going to think back to a book that really did have an impact on me as, as a younger student, and it's A Tale of Two Cities. And I say that because I talked about how I moved around 
And at the school that I was in um, through junior high, I read it in eighth grade. Then I switched to a high school and I read it in ninth grade. And then I moved to the small village and I read it in 10th grade. And I totally loved the book. Um, and I had three different um, teachers' approaches to it. But it, it is one of those ones that really stuck with me for a long, long time because it, it painted these disparate worlds that needed to be addressed at the time. Now I want to read that. I don't think I've read it. <laughs> it's good. Okay. Now I'm going to find it again because I ha- probably haven't read it since college now, but I'd like to read it again. Yes. I was going to ask you that because I thoroughly enjoy reading stories that I loved when I was a lot younger, novels. Now, as more of an adult, <laughs> it's always interesting. <laughs> you know what one I've done that with throughout my life is Anna Karenina and, or Karenina. I've read that at multiple stages of my life. And it is one that I really enjoy. But every time I read it, I notice different things. And I think it's really reflective of where I'm at at the point where I'm reading it. Yes. Isn't that a good lesson in perspective? (laughs) Yeah. What's your favorite place that you've traveled? My favorite place that I've traveled is, even that's a hard question because I love to travel. I'm going (laughs) to, I, I always say France because um, it's the language that I was able to stick with from second grade onward. I, I studied over there in high school and I still am very close with my high school exchange family. And love going back because I get to speak the language. But then I also have had the opportunity to represent in a small delegation of young elected officials in the United States on a trip to Russia, which was incredible in its complexity. It made me realize how much I really am an American and how lucky we are. Um, and it was tough, but really loved that too. Not, you know, it's France I always want to return to for the language, but to see something so different and a political system so different um, was really an incredible opportunity that I enjoyed also. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, this is a very hard question, I know, but I always love hearing people's answers because often people will give kind of two that are very different. And I think that's some of the beauty of travel is that you get different things out of it. Sometimes you travel because beautiful culture you want to lay in the sun, whatever it may be. And other times when I've traveled, when I've been to China, for example, I didn't find it really relaxing. It was a very different type of trip. It was so interesting and so inspiring in a different way. So love to travel too. What are you most excited for this year? I am super excited knowing that we are just about at the crest of the hill of COVID. (laughs) And You know, a year ago, I told folks that I thought it wouldn't be before October that we were through it. And people thought I was crazy, including my husband. And I was like, no, I just, and I mean, I had the chance, I went to my brother's wedding a couple weeks ago to see where, how things can be different than they are here when a whole state has a vaccination rate that equals, you know, Boise is highly vaccinated, um, but the areas around us aren't. Um, But I really do believe that in the next 12 months, we'll have made progress and be beyond this point of crisis that we're at. And for that, I am deeply excited. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you on that one. I think the (laughs) province that I live in is at about 90% now. So our province is, it seems to be doing quite well. So I hope that keeps up. (laughs) What is a lesson that you've learned recently? The lesson I've learned recently, I'm going to just say the, the power and importance of clear and caring communication can go so far. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? You're talking to someone who works in communications. <laughs> I agree with that wholeheartedly. <laughs> in fact, I've built my entire career around it. So 
I hear you. <laughs> and last one here, name a woman who inspires you. So there are, I, I was trying to decide if you wanted like somebody that everybody would know or if it's just anybody. And I decided just to go with anybody. And I got to say, this may be, be, seem really strange, but my daughter, she's 22. Like she inspires me so much. So I'm going to stick with her. I was talking to her the other day and she said, for some reason that she was so proud of me. I'm like, this is total role reversal. She totally inspires me. And, and yet she's telling me she's proud. I mean, it was just really funny, but I'm just, yeah, she, she inspires me. Mm, I love that. I've had people say their mom before. So yeah, it's whoever comes to mind first is perfect answer. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mary McLean. It was so great getting to know you and everyone make sure you go follow along on all these amazing pursuits that the mayor is up to. And I'll make sure to link your, all your information below. Thank you so much, Emily. It was great to chat. Really appreciate the opportunity. Love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Girls Who Run the World podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who would love it. Leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. To learn more about Our Gorongosa, head over to OurGorongosa.com and find us on social at OurGorongosa. 